So this verse is not teaching the power of faith. Mark it. This verse is teaching the powerlessness of faith. Did you get that? The verse is not teaching the power of faith. It's teaching the powerlessness of faith. In other words, it matters not how big your faith is this morning. Even if it's small, the size of a mustard seed, it can bring salvation. It can bring the power of God because here's the point. It's not our faith that is powerful. It's God who is behind our faith that is powerful. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, this morning, I want you to take your Bibles and be turning again to the Gospel of Mark. That's where we've been over the course of the last several months. And this morning, we are in Mark chapter 9. We're going to look at a larger passage of Scripture together this morning, verses 14 through 29. When you find your place there, Mark 9, 14 through 29, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. The title of the message this morning is simply this, A Father's Faith. A Father's Faith. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14, we read, And when they came to the disciples, that is Jesus and Peter, James, and John, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand And lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is God's holy and blessed word. Please be seated as we beseech his throne. 
Our Father, what a glorious account this is of a father's faith, but even more importantly, the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ in you, our Heavenly Father. Faith displayed in the person of Christ and doing what the disciples could not do, powerfully healing this boy. Lord, restoring to this boy and his father the joy of salvation. Lord, even in the midst of weak faith, we thank you for this text because it speaks to us. It speaks to our weak faith and encourages our hearts. Bless us, Lord, as we study this. Bless us with a stronger faith, but help us to know that in the weakness of our faith, you hear us because it is not our faith that saves us. It is Christ that saves us. And even our weak faith can be overcome through the power of your sovereign goodness and grace to us. We thank you for that and we ask your blessing as we study this text. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible speaks in many places, perhaps none more clearly than Psalm chapter 23, about the valley of the shadow of death. Psalm 23 says that when we find ourselves in such a valley, we are not to fear for God is with us, his rod and our staff and his staff comfort us. Often, however, we, and we would all admit this this morning, can't see him in the midst of life's dark circumstances. It is in those moments we know the scriptures, but we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. We are called in those moments to look to Jesus, who is the author of our faith and the perfecter of our faith, the very one who gave us our faith, the very one who preserves our faith. Peter, James, and John, as you well know if you've been with us, have left their mountaintop experience of witnessing the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had seen before their eyes the very deity of Jesus Christ. But now they have descended, we could say, to reality. They have come down the mountain, and yet even in that conversation that they have with Jesus, it is um, a glorious theological conversation, not quite matching the glory that they had seen on top of the mountain, but it nevertheless was glorious. Perhaps we could liken it to uh, Jesus' words to the disciples on the Emmaus Road, where he opened up the Old Testament scriptures to them and helped them to see how all of the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, pointed to his mission, his identity. That's what Jesus did, as we saw last week in verses 11 through 13. Jesus unfurls to them the Old Testament scriptures regarding his mission, regarding his identity, and most importantly, the promise that he would rise again from the dead. But we read here in verses 14 through 29, that they come to a valley full of darkness. We could say that they had left the presence of heaven to enter the throes of hell, complete with demonic forces controlling a boy whose father is absolutely desperate for deliverance. It was the famed artist Raphael who never finished his last painting, some say, was his best painting, he entitled The Transfiguration, in which in the upper portion he portrayed the transfigured form of Jesus with Elijah standing at his left and Moses at his right. The portion below pictures Peter, James, and John awakened by the 
bright brilliance of that glowing light revealing the deity of Jesus Christ. And then on the panel below that, below all of that, is a picture of a helpless demon-possessed boy with a father at his wit's end, surrounded by incompetent, unable disciples who are faithless to help. Such images, I think, detail the contrast for us between the light and glory of the mountain above and the transfiguration with the darkness and suffering of the valley below. Reality of life now comes to the surface after this one-of-a-time experience that Peter, James, and John have with Jesus. In this account, Mark portrays to us once again Jesus' power over the dark forces of the valley. And it is a very clear reminder to the disciples that they will be about the work of service. In fact, they've been called into the army of Jesus and they will do battle with the evil forces of Satan once Jesus is gone. Physically, they will have to depend, to depend upon him. He, of course, promised that he would die, but that he would rise again from the dead. He would send the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which would be their comfort as they walked through the valley fighting the devil and demons and establishing the church. We see this sort of thing really communicated throughout all of Scripture to God's people. If you've been with us, you understand that this account of Jesus uh, on the, the Mount of Transfiguration and uh, the glowing light that um, came forth from him is a reminder to us of Moses who uh, received a vision of the glory of God, the backside of God's glory, the glow of God's glory on Mount Sinai. And you remember that Moses descended the glory of that mountain to come to the valley of reality below as he encountered faithless Israelites who were engaged in pagan and demonic worship. Not only that, but you have Elijah in the Old Testament who sees the the glory of God on his mountain and he descends after leaving that glory, coming to the valley of demonically influenced paganism led by Jezebel and Ahab. All of these incidents reminding God's people that the battle we fight cannot be fought apart from faith in the promises of God. Life is hard. Life is tragic. There is a realness to life that uh, reminds us, quite frankly, that we're not only going to be involved in mountaintop experiences. We are, as Paul says, to walk by faith, not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5.7. We are, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, to live now the life that we live in the flesh, to live by faith in the Son of God. Because faith is defined in Hebrews as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That is your life. That is my life. That was the lives of the disciples, especially after Jesus left this earth. Peter would later make it clear that it is not some experience that is the greatest strengthening of our faith, not some subjective experience, but the objective word of God. He said in 2 Peter 1.19 that the prophetic word is made more sure. Yes, Peter says, more sure than my experience that I had on the mountain and seeing Jesus transfigured, even though I know what I saw. I don't point to that subjective experience to give you some sort of assurance. I want to point you to the more sure and prophetic word of God. As I said, soon Jesus would be gone physically from the disciples They would be left to establish the church and they must trust in his presence through the Holy Spirit, walking by faith, not by sight. 
I find it very interesting that the first lesson after descending the mountain that Jesus would teach them regarding the importance of faith would involve a real-life situation between a father and a son. In fact, a helpless father, a helpless boy, as the incident teaches us, Jesus would use that to teach the importance of faith, something we can all relate to. Ecclesiastes says that life is full of trouble. James says that trials test our faith, and these trials include a number of different categories. Could be health scares, spiritual crises, family issues, church problems, theological controversy. But the bottom line is, you and I are in a battle, and God is calling all of us to have faith in Jesus, who is the victor over all troubles, including sorrow, sickness, sin, death, and hell. And for his part, the father in this story I find very fascinating because he had the type of faith that is commendable. It wasn't perfect faith because no faith is perfect, but it was acceptable faith, commendable faith, weak though it was. When I was seven years old, I remember very clearly my dad coming home from work and telling our family that he was going to take us uh, on a business trip with him to the city of Philadelphia. Now, my dad worked for the federal government. Normally, we were not allowed to go with him on business trips, but this one we were allowed to go with him, and so excitement and enthusiasm filled the air. But I remember my parents warning me that Philadelphia was not a safe city and that we needed to be sure we stayed close by to mom and dad. I never forgot that, and upon arriving, we entered a large parking garage of several stories connected to our hotel, and as we unloaded the luggage, we made our way to the elevator, and I was trying to stay as close to my parents as I possibly could because there was a large crowd around waiting for the elevator, but as everyone got on, the door began to shut before my parents realized that I was left out. And at that moment, the excitement turned to sheer panic. Not only in my heart, but in the hearts of my parents, I'll never forget the terror-filled face of my father looking him in the eyes as the door shut and him screaming, Son! I get emotional about it, even talking about it now. In that moment, my parents were gone. And as a child, you think you're never going to see your parents again. And there was no one interested in helping me, by the way. There were people walking around, not offering a hand with this poor little seven-year-old boy. And after some time passed, the elevator doors opened. I saw my dad, and of course, we embraced, and we cried together as the elevator took us up. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, I don't know what I would do if I, if I lost you. And I, I look back at that experience, and I apologize for getting emotional, but it is one thing to experience the helplessness of a son. It is quite another thing to experience the helplessness of a father. And I don't know if Jeff and Carrie remember this, but on the very day that I drove my family to meet Jeff and Carrie, it was a, a wonderful day. And, and I, I remember we were driving to meet them because Jeff and I had been praying about starting the church and um, our kids were excited about that. Corey was excited about that. So we wanted to share that with them we wanted to share that news with them and we had a wonderful day here I was as a father bringing my own kids on a business trip of sorts with me I remember getting in the car and leaving and um, things began to turn south very quickly as Copeland he was only about two years old at the time began to scream out in pain uh, his face was red then it turned purple 
uh, it wasn't like Copeland to, to act this way. And as we tried to find out what was going on with him, of course, Corey called 911. I remember looking back and seeing that he was shaking and his eyes were rolling in the back of his head. He clearly was having some sort of seizure. I drove about 95 miles an hour across the bridge in downtown Jacksonville and knowing that he was conscious but something was seriously wrong, he was in some sort of shock. We all felt terrified and helpless and I remember dropping Corey off at the emergency room doors and uh, I made my way around the loop. There was a spot that I always parked in when I went to visit people in the hospital. It was labeled clergy. It was right up front and I pulled in that spot and I remember telling the older kids that before we go in, we need to pray. And although I was calm in the moment, I knew that God was in control as I laid my head upon the steering wheel. I began to weep as I cried to God that he would be merciful and save my son. We were completely hopeless, completely helpless in that moment. There was nothing we could do but pray for God's mercy, pray for God's help. Perhaps you've experienced some sort of helpless, hopeless situation like that. Maybe a health scare, death of a loved one, financial stress, some sort of spiritual crisis. We've all experienced the depth of desperate circumstances in the valley of life's troubled darkness. And that's what makes this passage so helpful. The Father's faith in our story, weak though it was, is the type of faith that you and I must have in the midst of our crisis situation. In fact, here's what it teaches us. The healing of this son teaches us about the importance of faith and the importance of prayer. And not only that, but how prayer itself reveals our faith in God. And Mark tells the story beautifully by unfolding to us six dramatic scenes. I want you to notice with me, first of all, in verses 14 through 16, what we'll call the disciples' argument. The disciples' argument. Verse 14 says, And when they, that is, Jesus in the inner circle of Peter, James, and John, after they had seen the transfiguration, came to the disciples, that is the other nine who didn't witness the transfiguration, Mark says they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Now the argument as we're going to see concerned the disciples' inability to cast the demon out. The demon out of this boy whose father had gone to the disciples for help and it was likely the failure of the disciples to heal the boy that the scribes, as indicated here, latched onto and began hurling insults toward, toward the disciples, taunting them, trying to cause them to lose credibility with the crowds. Uh, and as they rubbed in the fact of the disciples' failure, the disciples, no doubt, you can imagine, got defensive and an argument ensued. Perhaps upon the failure of the disciples, the scribes offered their own complete idea of what it meant to exercise demons, their own methods, which would have peeved the disciples even more who knew the powerless shenanigans of the religious establishment. But what happened was that a battle of theologians ensued in which the focus was no longer the boy, no longer the father, but the better methods of exorcism. And here is the problem. The problem was that both groups, the scribes and the disciples, were powerless apart from Jesus before he showed up. 
They were just as helpless as the boy and the father, although they pridefully thought they could help. But suddenly, help did arrive in the form of Jesus. We read in verse 15, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him, that is to Jesus, and greeted him. It says the crowd ran up to him. What of the disciples? Well, perhaps they were ashamed and humiliated and stayed back a little. Well, what of the scribes? Well, they certainly would not have been excited to see Jesus unless they could use this as an opportunity to try to discredit him um, again before the crowds. Interestingly, we hear nothing else about the scribes after this other than the question that Jesus directs toward them. They remain in the background. The crowd runs up to Jesus, as verse 15 says. Some speculate because of not only his sudden appearance, but because there was something of the afterglow of the light still surrounding his face after returning from the mountain. This, of course, would remind us of Moses when he came down from the mountain, except in that case, the people were fearful of him. They didn't run to him. They ran away from him. The text does not explicitly say that Jesus' face was glowing, but I think that it's difficult not to at least think of the Moses event. And even still, Jesus had commanded the disciples not to tell anyone. So if the crowd did see the afterglow of Jesus' transfigured body upon his face, they wouldn't have known what had happened on the mountain because Peter, James, and John would not have told them. At any rate, Jesus didn't give them time to ask because verse 16 tells us he began asking what all the fuss was about. In other words, what is this argument going on all about? Verse 16, he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Now, this is an effort of Jesus, I love this, to defend the disciples who uh, were no doubt humiliated at their failure. Jesus turned to the scribes and directed his question, what are you, the scribes, arguing about with them, that is, my disciples? Arguing could be translated disputing, and it's translated that way in chapter 12 and verse 28. It's the Greek word suzeteo, which is used by Mark to always describe the altercations that Jesus has with the religious leaders. In chapter 8 and verse 11, they were arguing with Jesus. Here they are arguing with the disciples. In chapter 12, they are arguing. Jesus is confronting these scribes on their attitude toward the disciples because it reveals their attitude toward Jesus. It reveals their lack of faith. And in essence, Jesus is saying that if they have an issue, they need to bring it up with him. To borrow the slang of our day, it's as if Jesus said, go pick on someone your own size. You want a battle, you want a fight, you have one, let's settle this here and now. Well, that was sufficient to shut them up because we don't hear anything about them in the rest of this account. I think that is a reminder to us not only of the graciousness and gentleness of Jesus to defend the disciples, but also of his boldness and his courage to defend them and protect them and defend the crowds who had been deceived by the scribes for generations. As pastors, we are to defend those in the congregation influenced by bad doctrine. As fathers, you are to defend your families against cultural trends and dangerous worldly philosophies. As mothers, you are to defend your children from ungodly influences and friendships that could mar all the raising up of your children and the nurture and admonition of the Lord that you are pouring into them. And Jesus sets before us a marvelous example of confronting error, confronting troublemakers head on. He ruthlessly defends the disciples as a warrior shepherd. 
And I love how he does it. He doesn't call them names. He doesn't just scream at them. He tries to engage them on the level of truth. You want to talk about why the disciples couldn't do this? Let's talk about it. Let's talk about truth. He knew truth was on his side, so he doesn't back down. He's not threatened by the naysaying of the scribes. And of course, I think that Christians need to have that sort of confidence as we engage the culture. We need to remember that truth is on our side. We boldly confront the culture where they are in error. We do it gently. We do it graciously. But we do it in a way that doesn't try to stir an argument, but that removes the level of argumentation because we want to debate on the level of truth. And people that don't want to have that conversation, oftentimes that turns into an argument, but at least you give the person an opportunity to get to the bottom of the matter and talk about truth. Jesus always engaged on the level of truth. Jesus was a pursuer of truth. And if you didn't want to talk about truth, there was nothing to talk about. So Jesus doesn't try to argue with them. He tries to have a conversation with them. They refuse. They walk away. And this silence, because they don't respond to his question, is broken by the desperation of the Father. He hears the voice of Jesus and he answers. We move. The scene shifts from the disciples' argument, verses 14 through 16, now to the dad's attempt verses 17 through 19 notice with me in verse 17 and someone that would be the father from the crowd answered him that is Jesus teacher I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute the father speaks to elucidate what ensued and brought on this argument it was rooted as he confesses and his attempt to bring about a healing for his son at the hands of the apostles. Now he comes humbly. Matthew tells us that he fell on his knees before Jesus. This is a desperate man. This is a desperate attempt for healing. Luke tells us that he raised his voice above the crowd to be heard and told Jesus that this was his only son, a plea for help for his only son. Such reminds us of Jairus' only daughter or the widow of Nain's only son, both of which Jesus ministered to. Just a reminder to us, children are very important to Jesus. And Jesus' heart particularly went out to parents who showed concern for their children's well-being. This is the heart of God. He expects parents to be concerned spiritually, physically, for the well-being of their children. This is natural and godly, and so God sympathizes and smiles upon parents and blesses parents and answers the prayers of parents that have that sort of heart. Jesus didn't have any room for those that viewed children as a nuisance. Those who viewed their own children as a nuisance by killing them in the womb, or those who view the children of others as a nuisance. Those who view their own children as a nuisance for their careers or their hobbies. No, Jesus is sympathetic to this man, listen to this, because he senses the sincere love that he has for his only son. Jesus would say, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Children belong to the kingdom of God. So when the father says, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute, what he means is that he attempted to bring his son to Jesus, but when he arrived 
to the disciples, he saw Jesus wasn't there. And it was at that point that he asked and or the disciples offered to provide a healing, which they were unable to do. And the end of verse 18 makes this clear. Look at your Bibles. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. Now we'll come to that, back to that in a moment. But notice the beginning of verse 18 as he describes the condition of his son in greater detail. He roots the condition in the force of a spirit or a demon. End of verse 17, a spirit. And he says in verse 18, whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. This child was not simply ill with disease. He was infiltrated with demons. He wasn't merely afflicted with incurable sickness. He was possessed by an evil spirit. And what he describes in the seizing of his body, the throwing of him down, the foaming at the mouth, the grinding of the teeth, the rigidness of the body was no normal case of epilepsy. This was no normal seizure. Evil forces were behind it. And furthermore, verse 17 tells us, according to the father's testimony, the end of it, that this was due to a spirit. A spirit, as he says, that makes him mute. If he was mute, it's more than likely that he was also deaf So he couldn't hear the comforting words of his father when he had such episodes. And because he was mute, he couldn't speak forth the deep pain and despair and agony that he underwent. This poor boy was imprisoned in an out-of-control, demonically influenced body, rendering him in a helpless situation. It was only sympathetic Jesus that could understand the intensity of his pain. The boy couldn't speak it forth. The boy was hopeless. Now, just on a side note, demonic activity, you see very little of in the Old Testament. Quite frankly, you see very little demonic activity even in the New Testament, aside from the transitional book of Acts. The Acts of the Apostles would have included some exorcisms. But in all of the epistles that Paul wrote and all the epistles you find in the New Testament, there is scant little regarding demonic activity. Demonic activity in the world really didn't reach its climax until Jesus came. That is when the forces of hell marshaled themselves against Jesus and against his mission to save sinners. Because Satan's goal from the beginning, even with the first temptation, was to destroy the image of God within man. We know he didn't succeed in that. The reformers were very, very clear on this. The image of God in man, the imago Dei, was not destroyed, but it was marred. What was destroyed was the works of the devil. That's what Jesus came to do. You tried to destroy the image of God within man. God says, I'll send Jesus to destroy the works of the devil. But yet, demon possession was an attempt to overtake the image of God within man, to mar it beyond recognition. Not every sickness is the result of demon possession, But all sickness is the result of the fall which was unhatched by Satan's deception of Eve in the garden. You understand this morning that God's perfect design is perfect health. It is sin that has caused, for example, the joy of a father enjoying his son and his life to be ruined by sickness and demon possession. It is Sin that destroys a relationship of a son to his father. It is sin that causes rebellion. It is sin that causes heartache in every one of our relationships. 
and our separation from God. Jesus, of course, came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to restore relationships. Jesus came ultimately to free us from sin, death, and hell. But in that process, he has also promised to free us from heartache, trouble, sickness, sorrow. And that is why we believe in the resurrection. Jesus has just predicted the resurrection before this to the disciples. He will predict it again after this occasion. This father senses that all is not right in the world. He knows that only Jesus can provide the solution. But Jesus wasn't there at the beginning. The disciples were and they failed. As verse 18 says, I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were unable. Unable to cast out this unclean spirit. Why was that? Why was that? Especially when earlier the disciples were able to do that. You remember back in chapter 6, Jesus had given them power to cast out demons. And uh, they went about healing, casting out demons in the power of God. Here, they are unable to do that. Mark 6.13 says, And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Why else do you think the Father, when he came to the disciples and saw Jesus wasn't there, sought a healing from the disciples? Because he knew, Mark 6.13, they had done this before. They had done this before with great power. But as these verses bear out, the disciples failed. We'll see why in a moment, but the main point to understand at this point is this simple reality. Satan is still active. And the disciples need to realize they are impotent to fight Satan, listen to this, apart from faith. That application needs to be accepted by us as well. We live in a broken, messed up, fallen world. And the faster we realize that we are impotent to fight the battles we have apart from faith, the quicker we will trust God to get through. These disciples, as I said, would establish the church. What is the church? What is the ministry of the church? Well, the ministry of a local church is the body of Christ. It's the hands and feet of Jesus ministering to our problems, helping us refute false doctrine, helping us raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, the church and dwelt by the Holy Spirit is the church triumphant, standing with Christ, standing in Christ, and together we look in faith to Christ. We trust in His Word, we follow His Word, we hear His Word, and we encourage one another to press on in the battle. The disciples needed to understand a lesson on faith. What were they going to do when Jesus was gone? Or would they trust in Jesus? Would they trust in the presence of the Holy Spirit? Would it be a Holy Spirit-empowered church full of faith, or would it be weak? You see, the disciples' problem, let me just be frank, was that of unbelief. Back in Mark chapter 6, they believed in the power of God. Here in Mark chapter 9, they believed in the power of themselves. Ministry had become mechanical to them, and their ministerial approach failed to trust in the power of Jesus. Don't be surprised by that. How many ministries today operate mechanically? All the right pieces are in place, but there's no emphasis on the word of God. There's no emphasis on the sacraments. There's no emphasis on prayer. Let me put that to you simply. There is no faith. 
all the right parts, all the right resources. But a church that does not walk by faith, trusting in the word and the sacraments and prayer, will be a powerless church with a powerless ministry. And while I'm talking about the church, let me talk about the other institution God has ordained from the beginning, and that is marriage. How many marriages have couples reading popular books, going to recommended counselors but fail to follow the Bible, fail to trust God in prayer, those marriages will fail. How many parents take pains to educate their children properly, shield them from the world's influences, lay down rules to follow, but fail to reach their children's hearts by instructing them in theology, failing to douse their parenting in prayer, these children will end up being branches cut off from God's tree. Because the reality is, whether it's ministry, the church, marriage, raising your children, we are all impotent in the face of the devil's attacks apart from trust in God and his word. And the devil today is attacking all three, the church, the marriage, and the family. The problem with the disciples was they had all the right books, all the right techniques, all the right resources. They were trusting in themselves. They weren't trusting in the power of Jesus. And Jesus demonstrates to the disciples their need to trust him for the power of effective ministry and their battle with Satan because of his words in verse 19. Notice your Bibles, and he answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Oh, that's a word in the Hebrew. It expresses deep, heartfelt emotion because Jesus was pained to see such unbelief. Now, it's tempting for us to apply this statement, oh, faithless generation, just to the crowds, right? Because they were largely unbelieving. Or maybe to the scribes, because they certainly were largely unbelieving. But I think Jesus, although he is applying it to unbelief in the crowds, unbelief in the scribes, I think Jesus is applying it to the unbelief in the Father's heart. And more importantly, I think he's applying this unbelief, this faithlessness, as hard as it is for us to imagine, to the disciples themselves. You see, we have trouble recognizing that because this phrase, oh, faithless generation, was taken from Old Testament prophetic grievances that God used against unbelieving Israel. For example, Deuteronomy 32, God called it a crooked and twisted generation. God called it a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. You remember when Moses was ministering to Israel in Numbers 14, God said to Moses almost exactly what Jesus says here, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? That's almost identical. Numbers 14, 11 to, to verse 19. How long am I to be with you disciples? How long am I to bear with you? The disciples were the issue here. Sure, the father needed more faith. Sure, there was unbelief among the crowds. Sure, the scribes lacked faith. But Jesus is rebuking the disciples not because they are actual unbelievers, but because they are acting like unbelievers, operating mechanically in the name of Jesus with no power. How scandalous. Oh, faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? 
How long am I to bear with you? That indicates Jesus is longing for the end. By the way, his life is almost done. For about three years thus far, Jesus has walked every moment of his life trusting every step in the heavenly Father. For almost three years, he had trusted the Father And yet he constantly had to address faithlessness. He constantly had to address unbelief. He constantly had to witness the weakness of man's faith. And so he cries out, oh, faithless generation, how much more do I have to see this? He's longing for the cross because he's longing for faith among the disciples. The disciples' failure to cast the demon out was due to their lack of faith. Don't forget that. But let's move on. In spite of the faith that Jesus saw, he had compassion on the boy. He had compassion on the father. The end of verse 19 says that he directed the father, bring him to me. After his disappointment and the lack of faith of the disciples, Jesus says, bring him to me. Now, it may be a simple point, and I'll confess it's not the main point of the passage, But does it not capture your gaze that Jesus has a specific interest in the boy, in the child? The boy is not simply a means to an end. It's not like Jesus reluctantly healed the boy just for the sake of the father's faith. The boy was no prop to serve Jesus' miraculous wonders. He was an object of the Savior's affection and interest. Bring Him, that is the boy, to me. Jesus is pursuing not merely the father, he's pursuing the boy. And that is why later in the account, when the man cries out, he cries out, help us. Not help me, help us. Help us. This is a package deal. Jesus has a heart to save the children of those who have faith. As I said, the church today has lost its faith in word and sacraments. It's become a faithless generation. The church in the West has never had so many big buildings, bigger budgets, large salaries for megachurch pastors, programs, resources, but we are a faithless generation. The church does not point people to Jesus because if they did, then churches would be word-centered and not man-centered. Churches, by the way, no longer bring their children to Jesus. They no longer catechize their children. Children no longer feel connected to the church because baptism is delayed to the point they're 25 and by that point they've already went off to college, they felt disconnected from the church and now they're more disconnected because they've fallen in love with the things of the world because their parents have never nurtured the faith in their hearts from the beginning. You're not old enough to believe. You're not old enough to repent of your sins. Baptism isn't for you. The Lord's Supper isn't for you. And then we hire youth pastors barely out of college who aren't even as mature as some of the youth in the church to spearhead some campaign to save our children from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And yet these same youth pastors are marked by the world's ways. They operate according to the flesh, and in some measure they do more for the devil than they do for God. Church is to be a covenant family. We are to tell our children to go to Jesus because Jesus invites the children just as he invited this boy. Jesus invites the children to come. We see that beautifully here. And where is our faith in that way in which God works? God is a God of covenant. God makes covenants with 
believers who have children to whom he has made promises that if they have faith and if they repent, they can receive these conditional promises. Where's our faith in that? Where's our faith, let me put it to you this way, this is not popular, but where is our faith that God builds the church from within? I mean, we hear all the time, well, God's got to build his church from without. Sure he does. There's converts, there's people that come in, and we want that, but God grows his church from within. This is part of the covenantal scheme going all the way back to the Old Testament. And I find it very interesting that there are constantly parents bringing their children to Jesus, and Jesus always shows an interest in these children. This is very personal. Bring him to me. Bring the boy to me. But the scene shifts yet again. We've seen the disciples' argument, 14 through 16, the dad's attempt, 17 through 19. Now we see in 20 through 22, the demon's aggression. And we'll move a little quick here, but Mark highlights just how desperate the father was, how severe the boy's plight. Verse 20, they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. He fell on the ground. He rolled about, foaming at the mouth, And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. In addition to what the father had already told him that occurred in verse 18, being thrown down, foaming at the mouth, grinding the teeth, becoming rigid, now happens. Verse 20. When the spirit saw Jesus, it convulsed the boy. He fell on the ground. He rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Here we go again. All of it unfolding before their eyes. And Jesus asks, how long has this been happening? Jesus is like a calm physician. He asks not uh, because he doesn't know the answer, but to show the father that he is sympathetic to his pain. He's sympathetic to what the father has gone through. And he wants to highlight the severity of the situation for the crowd. How long have you dealt with this? So as the crowd listens, faith can be conjured up in their hearts. And the father answers at the end of verse 21 and on into verse 22, well, from childhood. And it's often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. I mean, mean, the man just unloads. Jesus has given him the opportunity to unburden himself and the man says what occurs to him, but then throws in the fact that there were even times throughout the child's life in which the Spirit would try to throw him in water and burn him and throw him in the water and drown him. Jesus is drawing out this answer. To enable the father to be better prepared, to be more thankful once his son was healed. Jesus knew this father needed to rehash his pain in order to sense the depth of gratitude that he owed to Jesus once his son was healed. Jesus didn't need the information to perform the recovery. He's omniscient. He's showing this man that this man was in the presence of a sympathetic, merciful, personal Savior, not some impersonal, mechanical force, probably, quite frankly, the way the disciples were making it out to be. Arrogantly, thinking they can say and do apart from faith in God. Such as a reminder to us, I think, again, that we are to weep with those that weep. 
The father, knowing Jesus' caring heart, pours his heart out to him. And Jesus wants this father to pour his heart out because he wants the father to know the depth of the situation that he must acknowledge this is a battle between God and Satan. You're not winning and the disciples didn't win, but I can win for you. And even still, as Jesus draws faith out of the father, reminding him of his desperation, the father reveals a lack of faith. Did you see that at the end of verse 22? He says to Jesus, but if you can do anything, Have compassion on us and help us. Again, the plural pronouns. Have compassion on us. Help us. If you go back with me to chapter 1 for a moment, you may remember, although it's been a while ago, in verse 40, the leper who came to be cleansed. And he came to Jesus in verse 40, imploring him and kneeling, very similar to this father, But notice what he says. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. That's not what the Father says. Verse 22, he says, if you can. The leper says, if you will, can you? If you choose to, you can. No, this Father says, if you can, will you? That is, if you're able, will you? Apparently, there was a level of doubt in his heart. His faith is waning. When he first came to the disciples and he thought Jesus was there, he had strong faith. That's why he brought his boy to Jesus. But when the disciples failed, listen to this, his faith failed. And I want to tell you this morning that your trust better not be in people. I hope that your trust is not in me. Because my trust is not in you. And I may fail you and you may fail me. And indeed, that may occur. But our trust and our hope is in Christ alone. Maybe this morning you've been hurt by a minister of the gospel. Maybe you've had other Christians fail you. As this man had the disciples fail him. Perhaps your faith in God has failed due to the failure of other imperfect professing Christians. In my experience as a pastor, it's oftentimes... People who walk away from the church, it's because their faith is misplaced. person's faith or lack thereof in Jesus is determined by the actions and attitudes of professed followers of Jesus, and so they walk away. Don't let that be you. Your faith is not in others. It is in Christ. It is in this sympathetic, all-powerful Savior who can help. Notice verse 22 At least he says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. I mean, there's some faith because help is what he cries for and the source of his hope is rooted in the splachnizomai, the compassion of Jesus, the bowels of Jesus. That word help, baetheo, is made up of two smaller Greek words, the Greek word for cry and the Greek word for run. It conveys the idea of running to the aid of the one crying for help. And that is who Jesus is in this story. He is the one who rushes to our aid to help us. And I don't know what you faced this morning, but Jesus can help you. This is the story and the point of it. Jesus can help you in your dilemma. And Jesus not only can help you in your dilemma, Jesus can help you overcome your doubt because that's exactly what we see next. 
we move from the scene of the disciples' argument, the dad's attempt, the demon's aggression, number four, to the desperate appeal, verses 23 and 24. And there are really two appeals here. First is an appeal by Jesus to the man so that the man will then desperately appeal to him. Notice verse 23. And Jesus said to him, quoting the man, if you can... And if I was writing that out, I would put a question mark and an exclamation point because the man had asked this very thing. Jesus is quoting it, if you can? Jesus is saying the question is not if I can. The question is, do you have faith? Because as he says there, all things are possible for one who believes. This is stunning. The man had come to Jesus for his son to be delivered from the demon. And Jesus is coming to the man to deliver him from his doubt. To be fair, Jesus did not require faith to perform a miracle. There were many miracles Jesus performed where there was no faith or there was very little faith. So many miracles Jesus performed that there were times he just touched people or they touched him. There was, there's no communication. There was no evidence of saving faith. Jesus offered healings freely. However, Jesus would often use healings as a means to draw out one's faith, and that's exactly what's happening here. Let's be clear about this, because these verses are often distorted by false teachers. Let's begin with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that says, Faith is a gift of God, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. So Jesus is categorically not saying, listen to this, that this man's faith determines what God will do. No. But faith is the means of God acting. So let me put it to you simply. We are saved by grace alone. Amen to that. But the grace that sovereignly saves comes through the means of faith. That's why we say we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. And after we're saved, our faith does not force God to do anything. But faith is a means to access God's power. God has ordained faith as the instrument to take hold of for his power. As I said, many have distorted this verse. They teach the power of positive thinking. They teach the power um, of thinking something into existence. If you just believe enough, you can say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea to misquote Jesus in another place. This sort of neo-Gnostic brand of paganism, health, wealth, gospel, prosperity, preachers, name it, claim it. But it's neither our faith that saves us, it's Christ, nor our faith after we're saved that forces God to do whatever we want. And faith healers Teach that the reason people aren't healed is because they don't have enough faith. But that accusation can just as easily be turned against the faith healers by telling them the problem is you. You didn't have enough faith to heal. Indeed, that was the very thing Jesus rebuked the disciples for. Their lack of faith. Oh, faithless generation. There are no faith healers today. No matter how much faith they would have, they can't do what they say they can do. And they don't do what they say they can do. Such has been proven over and over and over again. So this verse is not teaching the power of faith. Mark it. This verse is teaching the powerlessness of faith. Did you get that? The verse is not teaching the power of faith. It's teaching the powerlessness of faith. In other words, it matters not how big your faith is this morning. 
Even if it's small, the size of a mustard seed, it can bring salvation. It can bring the power of God because here's the point. It's not our faith that is powerful. It's God who is behind our faith that is powerful. Faith must never go beyond God's word. Whatever goes beyond God's word is not real faith. What God's word promises, we can pray and believe that he will do. And such is exactly what this man latches onto. Jesus has a sim- essentially told him, if you believe, I'll heal your son. If I can, all things are possible. Jesus is in the presence, or excuse me, this man is in the presence of the author and perfecter of faith. He will give faith to this man and he will perfect and strengthen this faith. He's giving this father confidence that his trust in Jesus, though small, could provide healing for his son. He didn't have faith in his faith. He had faith in Jesus. Notice verse 24, immediately the father gets it. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. As I said, the boy's father first pleaded for Jesus to deliver his son from the demon. Now he pleads for Jesus to deliver him from his doubts. This is not a plea of one with no faith. Please understand that. This is one who has his faith rightly placed. His faith was not in his faith. It was in Jesus. The object of his faith was in Jesus, not in the power of faith itself. And that is true saving faith. Jesus so powerfully saves us that he's not limited to the doubts of our faith. That means he uses the means of our faith, though imperfect, to save us. He saves us from death. He saves us from our doubts. And in the midst of his doubt, the father trusts in Jesus. I believe. Help my unbelief. You know, that's the way it should be for every Christian. In our moments of doubt, we immerse ourselves in the promises of God. For this man, it was the promise that he would heal his son. That's what Jesus said, if you believe. The man had faith. Jesus would heal his son Because Jesus said that. He's resting in the promise of Jesus, not the strength of his faith, but actually in the weakness of his faith so that the strength of God can be highlighted. And when faith calls in the midst of doubts and fears of the valley, God always answers because now we move, number five, to the divine's authority. Verses 25 through 27 Not wanting to be known merely as a faith healer, Jesus sees the crowd growing, their curiosity seekers, more people with no faith, so he acts quickly. Verse 25, when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Instantly, permanently, eternally, the demon is rebuked. It's instant, it's permanent. Stark contrast to the inability of the disciples, the power of Jesus on display. And ironically, Jesus is demonstrating the type of faith he was calling for the disciples and the Father to have. He has faith in his heavenly Father and he proves successful. He knows his Father will hear his requests. Jesus desires to heal. He has the power to do it. 
But, notice your Bibles, verse 26, not before the boy has another raging fit, a last-ditch effort by the demon to subdue and destroy the boy. Verse 26, after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. Remember, the boy couldn't speak, so the boy's not crying out. These are the shrills of the demon himself, crying out, convulsing him terribly, no doubt foaming at the mouth. The boy was, but it says the demon came out. And the boy was like a corpse. He had always grown rigid. That was part of the seizures. But now it appears he's dead. And so most of them said, the end of verse 26, he is dead. Now we're not going to get into this morning whether he was dead or not because we don't know. The crowd thought he was dead. Perhaps he was dead. But in my mind, there is no doubt that at a minimum, this is a picture of death and resurrection. Verse 27, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. The term arose, anastemi, is used throughout Mark, Mark 8, 31, Mark 9, verses 9 through 10, Mark 9, verse 31, Mark 10, verse 34, to describe Jesus' own raising from the dead. This healing is a picture of the power of Jesus to raise the dead, the power of Jesus over death. By the way, We know that because of what happens next. The next scene, verse 30, beyond our current scene, they went on from there, passed through Galilee. He didn't want anyone to know, and he was teaching the disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days, he will what? Anastamy. He will rise. He will rise. Whether the boy was dead or not, I don't know. If he was, Jesus could raise him. If he wasn't, it was a picture by taking him by the hand and lifting him up and him rising, a picture of Christ's own resurrection. The resurrection is pivotal. It's pivotal to the validity of the Christian faith because it proves Jesus holds power over death and hell. And may I suggest that if this is true, which I believe with all of my heart that it is, that no matter what you face in your valley today, you can rest in the hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ. The worst you experience in this life is overcome through the death and resurrection of Christ. The message of this passage is, do you have faith in Jesus? Or are your problems and trials drowning you in doubt and despair? Your issue is not your doubt or your lack of faith. Your issue is you need to look to the promises of God's word. And in your doubt, cry with the man, I believe, but help my unbelief. I can't help but to assume, because we would need to have good reason to do otherwise, that uh, this father's faith was stronger than ever once Jesus gave him back to his son. I love Luke's little description. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 9, just quickly. Luke's little description Verse 42, while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, Luke says. I love this. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and he healed the boy and he gave him back to his father. As if to say, he's yours now. You've had the type of faith that saved yourself, you have the type of faith that will save him, he's your now, he's yours now, he's your responsibility, he's your responsibility. 
The boy saw the desperation of his father. He felt the demon expelled. He knew the power of Jesus. Jesus lifted him by the hand. He arose. It's not a doubt in my mind that the father and son embraced one another. And more importantly than that, that they both embraced Jesus by faith. Simple faith. You say, can a child have faith? Well, if the father admits that his faith is doubting faith, then don't you think the faith of a small child, even though it's small, is actually probably stronger in all that he saw? What does a father's faith do for his children? Well, let me answer in one word. Nothing, if what you mean by that is that your faith will save your children. That's heresy. But what is not heresy is to say that a father can believe unto salvation for himself and that by modeling his faith and trust in Jesus, it can have a covenantal influence upon his children. And that's the testimony of Scripture. That's the testimony of the church. And that is a lesson to draw from this story. But the lesson about faith wasn't just for the father. It was also for the disciples. So Mark's telling of this story doesn't end before one final scene shift that draws the main lesson of Jesus in this event altogether. We've seen the disciples' argument, 14 through 16, the dad's attempt, 17 through 19, the demon's aggression, 20 through 22, the desperate appeal, 23 through 24, the divine's authority, 25 through 27, now note with me, verses 28 and 29, the dilemma analyzed. Verse 28 says, and when he, that is Jesus, had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? They're oblivious to their own dilemma. Why did we fail, Jesus? They knew that Jesus was protecting them from humiliation, so they wait until they get into the house They want to hear it straight. That's a true Christian. Look, I messed up. You rebuked me. I failed. I've sinned. How can I do better? How can I do better? Why could we not cast it out? Where did we fail? Jesus analyzes the dilemma. Verse 29, he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's see, the problem was not that they didn't say a quick prayer before the exorcism. In fact, I'm inclined to believe that they did pray. We don't know. When they tried to perform the exorcism, I mean, what what other way would they do it other than call in the name of Jesus and the power of God? Verbally, they prayed perhaps, but their faith was not in God. It was in the words they used. They were mechanical, as I said earlier. They had grown cold, comfortable, confident, depending on their own strength, their past accomplishments, and they assumed that if they just said the right things, it would all work. Jesus says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The problem isn't that you didn't pray. You didn't pray the right way with faith directed to God. We learn that though God is sovereign, He has means. And the means to race toward heaven to receive power from on high comes only as we get on the entrance ramp with faith-filled prayer. This is where we draw strength, solace as Christians to effectively serve and honor God with our lives. Jesus taught them that the type of faith that comes with power is faith that prays. 
Indeed, faith reveals one's faith. I'm sorry, faith reveals, prayer reveals one's faith. Ferguson, Sinclair Ferguson put it this way. He said that faith is man's weakness trusting God's promise. Faith is man's weakness trusting God's promise in his word. And only through such weakness is the strength of God seen. Faith is weak. That's the point. But it is a weak expression of our trust in God's promises. And in the weakness of prayer, the Bible says we gain the strength and the power of God as we plead with Him, as we confess to Him even our doubts and ask Him to do what only He alone can do. He hears us as we pray in the name of Jesus, our great high priest, our great intercessor, and prayer works. Think for a moment how much prayer and strength you're missing out on as a husband and father because you don't pray. Or as a mother. Think how many blessings are not poured out on this church and its ministries because you and I don't pray enough. Ponder what prayers could spark revival and reformation in our day. The type of prayers in Jesus' name that has faith not in the prayer but in the Jesus in whose name you're making the prayer. Even when there's doubts. Above all, have you considered what your lack of prayer conveys about your lack of faith? That's really the point. Matthew's version of this account tells us that Jesus rebuked the disciples, Matthew 17, for their smallness of faith. Smallness of faith. Such is a good rebuke for us. The Bible is clear that we receive not because we ask not, right? James says, you desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. There's a right and a wrong way to pray. And it reminds me that where I lack power in my own life and ministry, it is the direct result of not asking. And not asking is the direct result of not believing. If the disciples struggled with it, we all will. God uses the weak things of this world like prayer to destroy that which appears mighty so that he receives honor and glory. Going back to that painting of Raphael, at the very bottom of it, the bottom panel showcases the disciples below with their hands reached out pointing to the transfigured Christ on the mountain to express that Christ alone can help them with their exorcism of the boy. (laughs) But either Raphael didn't have his theology right, didn't read the Bible clear enough, or he was really smart, and he was conveying that this is what they should have done. If they had had that type of faith to begin with in Jesus, then the boy would have been delivered before Jesus arrived below. And listen, any power we have in the Christian life only comes to us on earth through Praying hands outstretched in faith toward Jesus. That's it. So may we begin today by purposing to make prayer a priority in our lives. And let us begin by pleading with God, I believe, help my unbelief. For that is a prayer that God will answer. He answered it in this account. And we know that he is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. May we look to him and to him. 
I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.ChristReformedCC.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.PastorAndrewSmith.com.